Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Breshit, in the beginning. The address is Breshit, Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 8. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I am the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on November 4th of 2005. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern. Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. We're going to begin with the opening blessing for the Torah, and because this is the beginning parasha that we're going to be studying, I'm going to make it special by actually chanting the opening blessing for the Torah. Here on out, I will only recite the blessing for each opening portion, but because we um, want to create a seamless transition between the closing of the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy, and the opening of the book of Breshit, Genesis. Just like if you'll recall at Parashat Vazot Habracha, at the end of Devarim, Deuteronomy, then we not only read the last few verses of the book of Devarim, the last few verses of that last chapter, but we also turned and read the opening few Pesukim, the opening few verses of um, Breshit, of Genesis here. And if you'll recall, then... Chanting the closing blessing was something that um, that I uh, provided for the uh, the podcast listening audience. So to create a seamless transition, let's go ahead and chant the opening blessing for the Torah for the first parasha of our reading schedule. Okay, Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Bachar Banu Mikol Haamim VeNatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Ata Adonai, Noten HaTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, welcome to the first parasha, the first portion in a study on the Parashot Hashvua, the weekly portions. Now, this study is not designed to be an, ex- uh, an extensive commentary on the weekly Sabbath readings. Um, although this first installment to Genesis um, will be somewhat lengthy for foundational sake. Now, it's interesting that I say it will be lengthy, because if you notice, the commentary is only seven pages in written form, and we're probably looking at maybe 30 or 40 minutes in audio. Originally, when I wrote these commentaries, they were part of a Torah study that I had... um, that I had started uh, when I was stationed in Seoul, South Korea, back in 19... I want to say it was probably 98 or 99, somewhere around there, about 10 years ago. And what happened is um, the studies were 
generally maybe three, four pages long. So they were, you know, really just uh, outlines that I used to um, help the group facilitate a study on the weekly Torah portions. Well, as it turned out, uh, Hashem led me to actually start writing full-blown commentaries for each weekly portion, and that's why they started growing in length. And so this one is seven pages in length, and I state at the beginning that this is going to be longer. But what's uh, humorous to me now is knowing that I've written commentaries that are 40, 50 pages in length, uh, and on the weekly tour portion, some of them are 20 or so pages in length. So, you know, I state up here this is going to be a little longer for foundational sake. In reality, in comparison to um, many of the other ones, this is actually quite short. So I went ahead and left that sentence in there. I debated whether or not I should even just take that out of the written commentary or not, but I thought I'd leave it in there for nostalgia's sake. Um, but in reality, these are just um, thumbnail sketches of the weekly Torah portions. I, I, I urge you to study the Torah portions with um, with diligence in mind, with, with, with an insatiable uh, curiosity in mind. You've, you've got to want to know what God is speaking to us and saying to us through every single Torah portion. So for that reason, I recommend a few things. One of the most obvious recommendations I can make for you is that you read the Torah portion each week. Genesis 1, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 8, is not a lot of reading for you. What, five, six chapters? Read that first. Pray about what the Holy Spirit should show to you uh, through this Torah portion. A lot of God's work to speak to you. After all, it is quick, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is alive by the power of the Spirit. The words of God are alive. So allow them to speak to your spirit as you read them. And then as you pray and you speak to God, dialogue with Him. Dialogue with Him about the text. Ask him um, what important nuggets uh, he would like uh, for you to gain an, an understanding of, a deeper uh, uh, walk, uh, and deepen your walk, I should say, with him through the study of the Torah portions. Begin to dialogue with him. Talk back with him. Uh, uh, you should be in dialogue with God on a, on a, really on a daily basis, but if you can't manage that, at least on a weekly basis. And these Torah portions are just designed to maybe facilitate some type of a, um, a disciplined or regular study. Besides, it's helpful to know that Jewish people the world over, and these days I'm happy to add quite a few Christians, are actually engaging in the study of the exact same portion that we are also engaging our study in. Now, of course, if the reader or the listener desires a more in-depth study on the subject that then I provide, then I always suggest that you dig a little deeper for yourselves with the aid of what? Maybe a good Christian commentary, or obviously a good rabbinical commentary is going to be helpful. Why do I make the slight comparison between the two? Well, within Christian circles, not a lot of... Um, not a lot of practical commentary exists on the Torah portions because of the prevailing Christian view that the Torah has been relegated to... Um, I don't really know what status they relegate it to. I, I know that Christian theology suppresses the Torah on a practical level so as to not allow um, daily implementation... Uh, of, for instance, the ceremonial and the civil aspects of the Torah. It's no secret that the Christian church does not espouse to um, keeping the Sabbath, keeping kosher, keeping uh, the festivals, wearing tzitzit, uh, saying the set time prayers. Um, many of the things that mark Israel out um, as a distinct people, the church would not risk their reputation of looking Jewish if they were to walk into these things. So... You know, in many senses, I can't blame them. It's 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 a uh, 
it, it's a um, it's a difficult thing to turn your whole lifestyle around to to mimic the Hebraic lifestyle. Um, it, it's a it really is. Um, it's a big commitment. So you know, if if you are going to read these commentaries with the idea, uh, with the intent of turning your life around and and starting a new Hebraic walk with God, well then, I say buckle up because it's going to be one wild ride. At any rate, any additional biblical source that's going to cause the student to further investigate the truths of God's word for themselves. I firmly believe is a good source, whether Christian or Jewish. I don't. I don't really um, play favorites on one side or the other. Although, again, when it comes to studying the Torah for its practical application, you're going to find more resources on the rabbinic side than you are on the Christian side, unfortunately. Now, ultimately, we are all individually responsible to, as it says in Second Timothy 2:15 from the KJV, quote, "Study to show ourselves approved unto God." Right? God wants us to study. God gave his word so that we might grow into the grace and to the knowledge of his son, Yeshua. We've got to feed ourselves. And we've got to rely on the Spirit to open our eyes to understand the wonderful things that his Torah has for us. Sometimes this study requires a little what I call net fishing. Now, what this means is you have to lower your net into the uh, waters, scoop up a lot of fish and other things as well. And then when you pull the net into your boat and you you know you you begin to sort out what you caught and what you're going to keep and what you're not going to keep you know you're going to throw out the things that you don't need because whenever you scoop up your bring your your net you know down to the water and bring it back up scoop up fish you're also going to be scooping up junk or you're going to be scooping up fish that you shouldn't be eating so sometimes you have to sort out that which you're going to keep that which you're not i typically do this by like let's say i want to study um any one particular topic. Let's say I'm studying about the Sabbath. Okay, let's use it as an example. If I want to do that, I may go grab, say, five rabbinic sources on the Sabbath and five Christian sources. And I will pour through these sources, whether they be internet sources, books, audio, tapes, CDs, videos, etc. I'll pour through all the information, and then what I'll begin to do is carefully sort out that which um, lines up with what I understand the Word of God to be teaching, and throw out that which seems to be uh, either irrelevant or contradictory to what the Word of God is teaching. And that's what I call net fishing, where you just you, you, you pour through multiple resources, and then you pray and you discern which resources are valuable and which resources aren't as valuable. I don't typically throw out resources that don't hit the mark, because they may be valuable at another time in my life or another time of research. So uh, especially if I pay good money for the resource, I may just let it sit on my bookshelf for a little while until I can come back and visit it later. So that's what I mean by net fishing. As a Torah teacher, I recommend that the student do some collective research on his own. Compile information from many different sources, again, Christian and Jewish, and then carefully pray about what is helpful for him to foster spiritual growth. And then, as I recommend, put the rest on the back burner for a while. And what I mean by that is use what's pertinent to you and check back on the other stuff from time to time. You never know what Hashem may use from your bookshelf. You never know when he may refresh your walk with old material. Okay, when I say old material, I'm even including my own. For instance, I just mentioned that this commentary was updated on November 4th of 2005. Well, um, as it turns out, years from now, perhaps this, 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 well, I just dated my resource, right? My own commentary is dated. You know, maybe 10 years from now, I may go back and revisit this commentary and look at it and 
hopefully, prayerfully, I will have grown uh, since then. And so I can always use older material to to enhance my current walk with God um, and continue to update the material as, as, as needed. Or I can always find older books that were written on topics that you know I may not have um, had a chance to expose myself to. For instance, I picked up a book on prayer um, by Charles Stanley, well-known Christian preacher. Okay, and this book was written in the uh, 70s, I think, 70s or the 80s. Here, here was his book, and I picked it up, by the way, maybe uh, about a year or two ago. Here was his book; it was 20 years old or so, and yet was a fantastic resource. So that's what I mean. Don't don't be rigidly tied down to what people call dated material. The latest and the greatest book out there isn't always the best book for you, to be sure. The Torah is 3,500 years old, and it is the best book for us. Point taken? Okay. So, um, with that in mind, it's my desire that these particular studies that I write for the people will serve the reader in a somewhat balanced manner, not too simple, not too, not just um, you know chicken soup for the soul, not just... Uh, very clever maxims for people to kind of um, uh, uh, you know put on their refrigerator uh, or or something like that. But rather, I want them I want them to be balanced. I want them to be not too trivial, but I don't want them to be information overload either. I don't want you to have to have a um, a doctor's degree in theology uh, or a master's degree in, in divinity to be able to understand what I write. I don't write for the scholar. But yet I don't write for the uh, sixth grader either. It's somewhere in the middle, um, you know, just enough to, to challenge us. So hopefully that's where I will hit the mark as I kind of use the shotgun approach and broadly uh, fire out at my reading and my listening audience. That being said, it is my sincere wish that the Holy One will be gracious unto you as you sincerely seek a deeper, more meaningful relationship to him, of course, through his son and through the pages of his word. Okay, something I'm also going to recommend as I do these studies is I recommend that you obtain the written notes to study with alongside of the audio notes that I'm recording week after week, the podcasts. How can you obtain the written notes? Very simply, go to our website at graftedin.com, click on the commentaries link right on the front page, and you can then navigate to the left and you'll see where it says weekly portions. From there, you will have access always to every single Torah portion in the five books of Moses. All 54 portions are contained there in PDF document, and that's to ensure that uh, when you print it or when you view it on your computer, that it will always look the same worldwide because the PDF document format allows for me to um, uh, retain the formatting that I use when I write the original commentaries. Sometimes I include Hebrew words in the... um, study sometimes some Greek or other languages may show up or there are certain places where it's highlighted or bolded or italicized and and different colors are used and things like that underlining whatever it is I'm using to emphasize my point by using PDF document uh, which is Adobe uh, program and and Adobe uh, Adobe Reader is a free download A-D-O-B-E Adobe you can do a Google search for it and download it for free or you can click on the link from our own website anyway Download the Adobe Reader, and whether you're using a Mac or a PC, then you should be able to read my commentaries. And when you print them out, they'll look identical to what you're seeing on your screen. So I recommend you get the written notes. Go right to our website and gain them from there. Okay? That being said, let's move into the commentary. We're near the bottom of page one, starting with the first paragraph entitled, The Signature of God. 
The first few words in the Torah are so simple, yet so profound. In the beginning, God. We could leave it right there. And and that's enough to occupy man's curiosity for the rest of his life. In the beginning, God. I grew up in a religious home. And I've always liked to visit um, other churches and other synagogues uh, when I was growing up. I still do now to this day. Even though I'm in my 40s, I like to visit other religious institutions because I like to see what God is doing at other places. I can remember growing up listening to rabbis and preachers' sermons using the first four words of our parasha for the Shabbat of Breshit. In the beginning, God. As I said, there's quite a bit to uh, contemplate within that first pasik, that first verse. And these, these godly men, they always told me that there's more there than meets the eye. And so that's why I'm fascinated by the first Pasek. In fact, some say that the opening phrase pretty much sums up the foundation and purpose for our existence. In the beginning, God. In in these first two sections of my own commentary, I want to examine some of the details for the creation perspective. Okay, Here we have it. In the beginning, God. Notice that were it not for this foundational starting point, then we humans would be left with very little direction in our lives. You see, unlike that of Hashem, our existence is finite. We are not infinite. We haven't existed from the beginning. Only God has existed from the beginning. We have beginnings, and we need to be able to trace our simple beginnings to something substantial. We need to be anchored in something that is beyond us, that is greater than us. And so we need to find ourselves at the beginning with God by, by embracing God, by, by um, understanding that God was there at the beginning and God is the one who gives us our beginnings. You see, what I'm talking about is, is not necessarily um, confined to Christian circles. Actually, I found that even the non-believing scientists espoused to this fact by the presence of their various evolutionary models that all do what? They purport a beginning somewhere out there, you know, the Big Bang. They, they, they can't simply accept that, that everything was always here from, the, from, the, from eternity past. Um, they, they always seem to purport that you know, everything started from a simple state and worked its way to where we are now. You know, the amoeba you know, evolved and crawled out of the primordial, primordial soup and, and, and then it grew legs and it grew intelligence and, you know, and then I started swinging from trees and now here I am sitting in front of my, uh, in front of my MacBook um, recording this commentary, you know, using sophisticated techno- technological equipment from Apple and, you know, this, this uh, microphone that I have in front of my face. Wow, that's what the scientists want me to believe, right? That all of this evolved. But still, they cannot get over the fact that it had to start from somewhere. So there was this, there was this, there was this mass, and then it grew, and then it exploded, and, you know, and blah, 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 and on and on they go. Contrary to you know, the scientific dilemma of where everything came from, when we read here in the Torah that in the beginning God, we have an authoritative groundwork laid by beginning with Hashem, the authoritative groundwork is laid whereby we can can honestly and truthfully begin to build solid purpose for our existence, even as meager tenets of the creation that God has placed us in charge of, to be sure. 
as we're going to soon find out, one of the primary reasons for man's creation was, in fact, to rule over the fish, the birds, the animals, and over all the earth. You can read that in Genesis 1, 26. That's not the only thing we were created to do, don't get me wrong, but that is, that is one of our primary um, uh, functions, why we were created. The earth was created for us. We are to rule over it, to subdue it, and to, um, uh, uh, you know, to master it. Not to, not, to, not to harm it and to rape it and to pervert it, but uh, God gave the earth to us. Now, modern scientists, again, would like for us to reject the idea that there is a higher power other than ourselves, someone that we must ultimately answer to for our moral failures or the decisions that we make from a day-to-day basis. The scientists who, who reject God don't want us to read these words here in the book of Genesis. Because they want us to believe that we are all just some fantastic jumbled mass of, what, preconceived amino acids that supposedly grew intelligence in the course of a few million years. They don't want us to credit our creation to the higher intelligence known as God, the super intellect who is in charge of everything. That's why they have their scientific... um, uh, I want to say ideas or, or or theories that suppose that everything's a million years old. Now maybe, maybe, just maybe, the Earth is a million years old and that man's uh, history is, is older than we suppose. It still doesn't matter whether... Now I actually opt for a young Earth, just in case you're wondering where my position is. I opt for an Earth that's not much more than 6,000 or so years old. But... Um, but there are some who say, you know what, the scientific data can't lie. If the scientific data shows that the Earth is a million years old, then who's to say it isn't? I'm, I'm willing to admit that there possibly is a million years of creation in front of us. But it's still creation. God would still have created it. I simply do not espouse to the fact or the theory that um, the Earth simply just you know, evolved out of some big mass of soup, um, you know, Bang, there it is. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> I saw a clever bumper sticker the other day. It was a Christian bumper sticker. And it said, I believe in the Big Bang Theory. And then the next line dropped down and said, God spoke and bang, there it was. Um, that's kind of clever. You know, the scientists don't want to believe in God. Because if we believe in God and give God the credit for this creation, then we have to believe that the moral decisions that we make, as I mentioned, the sin problem, ultimately is also um, resting in the hands of this creator of ours, and we are ultimately responsible for the choices that we make, good or bad. The scientists claim that we have simply evolved and crawled from the primordial, as I mentioned, the primordial soup, into the awareness of being able to scientifically study in depth our own simple beginnings. We're so smart that we started out as monkeys swinging from trees, and now we're smart enough to actually go back and study the monkeys who are still swinging from trees and realize that we're no longer monkeys anymore, right? Wow, we're such smart monkeys. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, I don't believe that. I don't believe we came from monkeys. God created us with intellect because we are created in His image. And the opening verses here in Genesis not only diametrically oppose the hypothesis that we came from monkeys, but that really the verses here in Genesis don't even afford us the luxury of scientific research. God doesn't say, here I am, put me under your petri dish, examine me. Once you've figured me out, then I want you to believe in me. God doesn't do that. He actually, in fact, 
the narrative here in Genesis, it actually takes for granted, when Moshe wrote it, the fact that all things came to be by the power of God without going into any scientific studies to prove it. God could have had Moshe write down the scientific and mathematic formulae um, necessary for us to actually prove the beginnings of everything that we now are able to study. God is that smart. And he could have told Moshe, here's what I want you to write. You know, pages after pages of, of scientific data for us to, to study and actually then go into nature and put our microscopes to work and realize that, wow, the Bible's right. But God doesn't do it that way. He just says, in the beginning, Moshe writes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he goes from there. He doesn't even explain who God is. We just, we're just introduced kind, you know, kind of rather suddenly to this person called God. I like it that way. Beginning with Hashem changes our viewpoint from that of scientific observation to one of absolute faith grounded in the word of God. You know, a scientist who refuses to objectively deal with a supernatural creation, in my opinion, is a scientist who refuses to deal with a supernatural God. The creation is supernatural. I, I really do believe that within the, the heart and the spirit of genuine, honest scientists, they, they know that as they study the, the delicate... Uh, framework and the balance of nature they have to conclude there's no way this could have evolved by chance it bears the creator's signature just like a master artist will always put his signature on his work you know I have a again I'll, let's use my computer as an example I have a MacBook sitting in front of me right it's the white model uh, it's very nice it's, an, it's got an Intel processor in it um, you know 2 gigs of RAM um, you know, and it's really, really nice, nice, bright screen. And you know, it's got a keyboard. And 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 what I love about Apple products, at least my Macintosh, and my uh, my my G5 in the other room, and my iPod. Um, what I love about Apple products is that they really do just simply work. There's very little configuration involved, very little um, guesswork involved. I just basically plug them in, and they work. And what's really interesting is that because they work so well, Apple wants everyone to know. Now, this is not a plug for Apple, by the way. This is just, I just happen to be a, an Apple aficionado, and, and I prefer using Macintosh products over PC products. Um, but what's nice about Apple products is that because they work, Apple wants everyone to know that they, they are made by Apple. So if I turn my MacBook over and look on the top cover, the, the you know, as I close the MacBook, here is this nice glowing Apple logo right on the cover. Now, why do, I why do you suppose that Apple logo is there? Well, because Apple Incorporated, Steve Jobs and his friends, they want everyone to know that this is a Macintosh computer. It's an Apple, and they're proud of what they've made. Their signature is on their products. Every Apple product you buy has the signature logo, the Apple logo on it. You know, the, the little Apple icon with a bite taken out of it, out of the, um, out of the uh, what is that, out of the uh, right side. Um, they want you to know that this is an Apple product. God, now this is a very poor example, I suppose, poor comparison, Apple computers to God, but, but when God created this universe, <clears throat> his signature is all over everything. Look at the order down to the, the, the very, very smallest level of, of, of the, um, 
of the things that we can study under the microscope, even down at the smallest level, the scientists have to admit, there's order here. This could not have simply evolved. The body is, is, is a very wonderful machine. That's a great example I could have used. You know, my Macintosh is a great computer. It's a great MacBook. But eventually it's going to wear out and it's going to fall apart. It's going to cease functioning sooner or later. Hopefully later than sooner. But my point is, is that God created everything and he put his signature into it. And if we will be careful enough to give him credit and look for it, I believe every scientist would have to admit there's a supernatural intellect behind this thing I'm studying. And the book of Genesis is just a, a very thumbnail sketch or a, a glimpse into this uh, the signatures of, of God's. It's, it's a wonderful thing if we will just stop and, and look for it. So, scientists, I believe, are, are uniquely poised to, um, to, to, to know God in a way that uh, maybe those of us who aren't scientists know. It's kind of like the priests of old. They were in a unique position to experience the supernatural power of God on an everyday basis. And scientists, by studying the creation, by studying the universe around us, they also are in a unique position to see God's signature. In fact, the opposite is quite true. By removing God from the equation, what happens is that mankind effectively dulls his own conscience toward the responsibility of his own actions, good or bad. And if there is no God, then ultimately there is no need to answer to anyone but myself. And you know what happens? In this way, the scientist is actually working against himself. Because the Torah teaches that mankind will ultimately destroy himself and become a fool. The mercy of the Holy One offers us an authoritative beginning, complete with purpose and structure for our lives. That's how God designed it. You see, when God begins something, then its destined purpose is made sure. Let's turn now to the Hebrew text of our um, parasha. I want to read the first few pasukim, the first few verses in Genesis here. Again, a seamless transition was provided in Parashat Vazot Habracha, where we read the final few verses of Deuteronomy, and then we seamlessly transitioned into the first few pasukim of Genesis. Let's read those first few verses in Genesis one more time as we um, continue in our study here of this first parasha. The Hebrew reads, Breshit Bara Elohim et Hashemaim ve et Haaretz ve Haaretz Haita Tohu Vavohu Vachoshek Al Panei Tahom Vurach Elohim Merachefet Al Panei Hamaim. It keeps going. It says Vayomer Elohim Yehi Or Vayehi Or. The English reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was unformed and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the water. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. End quote. You see, unequivocally, we see the foundation of the universe spring forth not from some 
supposed Big Bang, not from some some distant hum that just grew into a, a, a power or force. We see it spring forth from the creative handiwork of Hashem's spoken word. We also know from additional sources, such as the rabbinic sources, that it was the creative power of the word that brought the heavens and the earth into existence. I might add that the Bible itself tells us in other places, other than Genesis here, that it was the word of God that was the creative force at work here in the beginning. The Hebrew word bara in the first verse there, Bereshit bara Elohim, the Hebrew word bara, translated as created into the English, it actually means from nothing into something. There was nothing for God to work with. He simply called nothing into existence. There's a Latin equivalent here. It's called ex nihilo. And it seems to be that this particular phrase bara is reserved exclusively for the power of God. In fact, if we study the rest of our Torah, the rest of our Bibles, um, we never find the adversary, we never find angels or any other created beings, this includes man, possessing the same type of creative ability. You see, God's signature is on his work. Only God can call nothing into something. Only God can do that. So, if we're going to be good scientists then we need not speculate the folly of big bangs or pops and whistles. Okay? Just listen to what God is telling us. Like a master artist, his orderly creation bears his signature and his signature alone. In fact, this signature in creation is the very reason why, on Judgment Day, no man will have an excuse for denying the Creator his due honor. And the proof is, is actually written down for us in Romans 1, verses 18 through 25. I read a verse uh, in part A from the Hebrew, um, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. I'll go ahead and read that again for you in both Hebrew and English, because we're going to look at the one of the one of the Hebrew words here that's... Uh, particularly germane for our study. The Hebrew says, Breshit bara Elohim et ha-shamayim ve-et ha-aretz, v'ha-aretz ha-ita tohu v'avohu v'choshek al-panei tehom v'ruach Elohim merachefet al-panei ha-mayim. The English is, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was unformed and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the water or over the surface of the water. Now I want to talk about this spirit and its hovering. This next um, section is entitled Spiritual Power. The word translated hovered in the verse that I just read, verse 2 of chapter 1, in the Hebrew it's merachefet. Okay? And the root word of merachefet is the word rachaf. This word rachaf, this verb, actually conveys the sense of shaking or moving, or fluttering. It's translated as hovering in the passage, but according to the BDB, the Brown Driver Briggs and Jacinius lexicon, um, shaking, moving, or fluttering are nuances of this word. You can look down at the bottom of page 3 to um, footnote number 1 to see what I'm talking about there. Fluttering, hovering. Sounds like a bird, yes? In fact, 
that is the idea behind this word, this verb. Fluttering is when a bird softly relaxes its flight to alight upon its young. You've seen a picture. You've got a nest. There's the young ones there. They're, they've got their, their heads pointed upwards. They're chirping. They're waiting for mama to bring them some food. Chirp, 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 chirp. They're just going away at it. And then in the distance, here comes mama bird with some food in her beak. And she's going to land in the nest. Well, she's not just going to go come swoop down and plop down because she might injure her young. So what she does is she she relaxes her flight as she's coming in for a landing, and she hovers over her young birds uh, and then softly comes down gently um, and then you know brings them their their um, their provision. That is the picture that's described by the Ruach, the spirit, as he lovingly and closely broods or or flutters or 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 hovers over the newly created substance that God just spoke into existence isn't that a neat picture that the that that that's painted by this Hebrew verb rachaf now how is it that i understand or how do i come to know that this is the nuance uh, behind this verb well this verb is found three times in scripture okay and it's defined as hovering only one other time in the entire Tanakh. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10 and 11. Quote, He found his people in desert country, in a howling, wasted wilderness. He, speaking of God, He protected him and cared for him, guarded him like the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up her nest, hovers over her young, spreads out her wings, takes him and carries him as she flies, end quote. You see how this is described in this other Pasuk here? The eagle who stirs uh, up her nest, hovering over her young. This is a beautiful illustration of the protective power of the Spirit of God in relation to his children, Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, as they travel through the wilderness. And as I read the passage, since it's the same Hebrew verb there, for the word hovered, in the Devarim passage, the Deuteronomy passage, then it's easy how it can remind me of the same spirit that hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation. The word translated hovers in our above verse is the same root as the one used in Genesis 1-2. You can look it up in your Strong's. And in fact, to strengthen the connection between the two applications, between the Devarim passage and the Breshit passage, it, you remember every Torah portion has a counterpart Haftara portion that has been selected by the sages so as to allow a, a, um, a similar study of the similar topics. And in the Haftara to Breshit, in Isaiah 42, verse 5 through 43.10, we're going to find something interesting there as well. Now, the Haftor portion um, complements the Torah portion in its in in basically in its uh, in its content. Or at least there's there's supposed to be a connection between the Haftarah and the Torah portion. I've tried to um, highlight this connection in my commentaries to the Haftarah portions that I publish. Um, to those who are subscribed members to my Yahoo um, group, in case you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, if you'd like to get the commentaries to the Haftarah portions, they are not available on the website at graftedin.com, and I do not record them as podcasts. Instead, you must 
subscribe to my weekly Torah portions if you'd like to get the complimentary Haftarah portions sent to you via email. Of course, my subscriptions are free. I never charge anything for receiving my information. If you'd like to donate, that's a different story. But I don't charge anyone to receive the information. It's always provided for free. I only ask that you subscribe to the Yahoo group um, so as to uh, allow me to send you the Haftar portion. I kind of make that a subscription-only feature. Let's move on into my commentary here. We're talking about the spirit hovering over the surface of the newly created substance that God spoke into existence. And we've seen how this word, this phrase, Merachefet, shares the root word, Rachaf, and it's used in the, in the Deuteronomy passage. But we find it also in Isaiah 42. That's where the Haftar portion is uh, chosen from. In this passage in Isaiah, uh, we read in the opening 17 Hebrew words a summary of the first chapter Actually, in Genesis. Let's read that here. Thus says God Adonai, who created the heavens and spread them out, who stretched out the earth and all that grows from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. End quote. Sounds like the Genesis passage, doesn't it? God created the heavens and the earth. God gave us our beginning. God spread out the resources that we were going to need to 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 uh, pursue and dominate the earth, uh, to to um, uh, till the ground properly and to care for it. God gave us the resources necessary so that we can survive on this planet. And then God also, according to this pasuk here in Isaiah, gives breath to the people on it. Remember, God breathed into Adam, and he became a living being a living spirit. God gives us our purpose. God gives us our spirit. Isn't it only fitting that we should return this back to him in sincere worship? I think it is. Let's move on now into my commentary into um, just some of the basics uh, of this Torah portion. I want to talk about some of the logistics of the creation. Let's talk about God's all-knowing and all-working power, his omniscience. This next section of my commentary is entitled, Omniscience at Work. Remember, when God put the universe together, he knew in advance how it would best work together. Unlike the evolutionist model that we talked about in Part A, we find in the Torah a creator that is what? intimately interested in his creation. He didn't just whip something together, you know, via cosmic dust and proton charge and molecules and voila, there it is, and then abandon it to quote-unquote evolve on its own. You ever heard that theory purported? Yeah, sure, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he stepped back to let it evolve. No, that doesn't work that way either. His beginnings, as we stated already, carry with them meaning and divine purpose. He knows the purpose for which he created all of these things. He knows how it is designed to work together, and that's why he designed it the way he did. Let's read further into our parasha, and we see the order in which he created things. Look at uh, my notes if you have them there. Um, We are right around the middle of page 4. There are seven days to the creation. If we take a literal seven-day approach, or if you can take seven time periods, it really doesn't matter. We have seven periods broken down for us. Because that's how the the scripture reads, right? Um, 
it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth in verse 1. And we get down to verse 5 and it says, God called the light day and to the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. And that set where it says in the, in the evening and the mo- and there was evening and there was morning day two uh, in verse 8. And there was evening and there was morning uh, day three or a third day in verse 13. And on and on it goes. So we have this um, order. Okay? Let's look at our parasha and see what he created on these different time periods. On day one, light and darkness were created. First day. On day two, firmament and sky. Second day. Dry land, seas, grass, plants, and trees were created on the third day. Stars, planets, sun, and moon on the fourth day. Marine life and birds, livestock, and crawling animals were created on the fifth day. And then we have the crowning creation of male and female on the sixth day. Man was created. And then this unique day of rest, a time of rest and refreshing. The Shabbat was brought forth on the seventh day. Now, if we were if we had time to study this in depth, we would we would find out that the sequence of events is not randomly initiated, like the revolution. I'm sorry, like the evolutionary models would suppose they were. You know, in evolution, things just kind of happen by natural. Um, what are they called? Natural selection. You know, uh, man crawled out of the primordial soup, and because of of natural processes he's going to need to fend for himself he develops teeth and claws and 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 whatever else he needs to defend himself and then uh you know the other animals develop and and everything just kind of um you know somehow came together by chance as the way it needed to be no that's not how it came to be god created everything in a specific order he created man to rule over that which he had created. And so he gave us the resources so that we could um, um, accomplish the tasks that he would uh, give to us. Later on we see that um, when man is created, God places him in the garden and uh, gives him instructions about what to eat and what not to eat, how to till the garden, things like that. Even after man sins and he's put out of the garden, the grace and the mercy of God are still seen in action because the the earth turns on its axis and it rotates about the sun at at such the precise distance and and so that man can actually live and thrive on this planet and um, work the ground and bring forth the resources resources that he's going to need to uh, survive you know man is given the means to eat and to provide for himself clothing shelter um, eventually to go on to build cities and towns and things like that God created us in a specific way. God didn't just throw it all together and hope that it would work together somehow, hoping and praying that that the evolutionary process would somehow work itself out in the survival of the fittest. No. Everything is done with a super intellect at the helm. God is the master architect. Our galaxy is not just spinning along, drifting through the universe with no one to chart its course. Our Lord, the Lord of hosts, Adonai Tzvaot, he was there at the birth of the universe. And when all is said and done, he will be there when it comes to an end. And guess what? From beginning to end, people, he is orchestrating every minute detail. God has not turned his back on us. God realizes that we walked away from him. 
And so from the beginning, God set into motion the necessary factors in our history so that we can find our way back to the garden, back to God. When all of his creation has run its chosen course, God will be there to facilitate another new beginning. We don't know exactly what that looks like. You can read the book of Revelation and speculate. But God will be there. God will never, ever leave. So, I spent quite a bit of time discussing the details of creation versus evolution. I'm not an apologist in this area. If you'd like more information, there are plenty of Christian apologists that you can um, you know, get their resource materials, evolution versus creation. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot of information that could be spoken of, but it's, it's, this is not the time and the place for that, and I'm not the one to be able to do that. But I've spent enough time here in my commentary to give us... Um, a framework for understanding that we should choose creation, that we should choose God. And you know what? The consequences of choosing the wrong system can be detrimental. If you choose God, it can mean life. If you choose other, it will certainly mean death. However, believe it or not, all of this uh, talk about the uh, creation and evolution... That's actually not the primary thrust of my commentary. I do want to talk about sin. But I want to briefly talk about the decision to sin from our first parents. And I want to talk about it from a different angle. So this brings me to the second part of my commentary. Man's choices. Let's talk about the fall. This next section is entitled, The Fall. It's no secret that the first unfortunate sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are Adam and Chava. It's no secret that what they did affected everyone else because their choice left an indelible mark on all of mankind that followed afterwards. They are the parents of humanity. And what they did in the garden, in their disobedience, has affected every man, woman, and child, boy and girl, down to this very day, Jew and Gentile. It does not matter. We are all a part of Adam and Eve. And this mark that we bear, a mark which only Hashem himself would eventually be able to remove, cannot be denied. There's a huge discussion within Christian and Jewish circles, a debate over the original sin issue. You know, are we born with sin or do we just derive sin after we're born? Is it something that we do, that we choose, or is it something that we're born into? Ultimately, it doesn't matter, really, whether we're born with it or we choose to sin, because ultimately, the Bible tells us that all sin, we all choose sin. Eventually, we all become sinners, you know, given enough time. So I suppose it really doesn't matter, even though if, if I had to choose, I would, I would opt for the original sin as seen through the eyes of the Christian uh, camp where we are actually born into it. The rabbis don't like to believe that we are born with original sin because that would suggest that God's creating you know, of new people, bringing new souls uh, into the world, is why would God bring defective souls into the world? The rabbis just can't fathom that. Thus, we have a clever saying that we recite in the uh, in the prayer book during Shacharit prayers: Elohai Neshama Shinatatabi The soul that you have given me, O Lord, is a pure one. And so, this notion of original sin is upsetting to the rabbis. Well, 
the sin of eating of the forbidden fruit of chapter 3 in Genesis of our Torah portion here, it was not just some trivial mistake made on the part of innocent children. I don't think so. I mean, sure, the adversary launched a well-thought-out assault. He attacked the weaknesses of the, of the first couple's flesh. He attacked their, their eyes and the pride of life. He actually, if you think about it, and this is kind of a, a preacher's homiletic explanation of First John 2.16 that I heard one year. I think it was probably Jerry Falwell, the late Jerry Falwell, who, uh, who brought this sermon. But basically, the adversary attacked um, our first parents through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And of course, that's taken from First John 2.16. Um, and I think it was a very well, very well um, put together sermon. I don't have time to recreate it here for you in my commentary, but I believe that there's a little more to the sinful uh, transaction in uh, Genesis than meets the eye. Okay, so let's study it. In order to see it, then I am going to conduct my own sort of uh, hidden teaching or my own sort of sud teaching. The word sud is a Hebrew uh, term which refers to. Um, things which are hidden or things which are not easily seen. Uh, The rabbis actually derived four different ways which to approach our study of Scripture. And we've got a clever acronym to help us remember what those four ways are. The acronym is pronounced PARDES. It's formed from the P-R-D-S corresponding to the Hebrew ways or the Hebraic way of approaching Scripture. The P stands for Peshat, which is the plain or simple meaning of the text as we encounter the text and we read it. The, uh, the, you know, the logistics of the text, the, the who, what, when, where, and why of sorts of the text. That's the Peshat of the P of Pardes. The R stands for Remez, and that's, that's where the text isn't really telling us outright what it's trying to get us to understand, but it's hinting at a particular idea. That's what the R is, the Remez. And then the D in the Pardes stands for the Drash or the midrash. Okay, you're ever, you're going to hear me talk about midrash quite quite a bit in my own commentaries. Midrash or drash is a searching method of the text. You're not always going to see what the text tells you until you start corresponding this text with that text and and corroborating your information from one side of the passage to the other side and and and, and kind of linking things together via phrases and clauses and 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 words and 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 and, and the like that's that's kind of midrash okay it's the searching and then finally the sud is sometimes you find things in the hidden sometimes things that that are 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 kind of um below the surface of the text uh they show up in the gematria in the the numerical value of the hebrew letters uh they show up uh in um peculiar words or phrases they show up in um the conjugations of the verbs that that don't seem to be quite normal at times so that's what i mean by the uh, uh the the sud i'm not so sure that the, what we're going to talk about next is sud it, it might just be midrash but um i thought i'd give you that introduction to um the different wa- the different ways of studying scripture in any way so this hebrew word sud means hidden and it is the rabbinical way of examining a text or word of scripture using the numerical value of a word its proximity to other words in the text or simply a deeper understanding of the word itself linguistically all right so that's why i've chosen that term uh, for this next little exercise. In a lighter sense, this is what etymology 
seeks to explain, right? Etymology is the study of, of the words and their beginnings and, and their adherence and, and the different conjugations of words. That's etymology. I like etymology, especially when it comes to uh, the Hebrew text. So, um, etymology, as I state in my commentary, is the history of a linguistic form shown by tracing its development since its earliest recorded occurrence in language where it's found. Let's look at one particular verse, one Pasik. Let's turn to Genesis 3.6. The Torah says in, in Genesis 3.6, quote, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it had a pleasant appearance, and that the tree was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. End quote. Now the emphasis was mine. If you have the written notes, you'll see that in uh, Genesis 3.6, I underlined the word or the phrase making one wise, and I put the word one in brackets. Um, in Hebrew, the phrase translated as making one wise is really just one word. It's literally lahaskil. Okay? And the phrase lahaskil stems from the Hebrew word sakal. Okay? Or sakal, I believe. Um, yes, sakal. Now, this word. This verb, sakal, um, in the phrase that we have, lahaskil, it's actually conjugated into a, a different form. Do you know what I mean when I say conjugation? Um, let me just look up a dictionary defin definition of the word conjugate real quick for you. Because some people ask, and I've explained it in my own terms, but let's just look up a dictionary, dictionary definition. According to the dictionary here, conjugate means... Um, it means to give the different forms of a verb in an inflected language as they vary according to voice, mood, tense, number, and person. So that's what conjugate means, all right? Now you'll know, and the next time you ask me, you can uh, take the definition that I gave you as straight from the dictionary. But this verb here, sakal, is conjugated in what is known as the hefeel stem. All right, now let me just pause and explain this conjugation from a Hebrew. The Hebrew language or Hebrew verbs find themselves conjugated into seven main different forms. Okay, we go from like a simple form down to more complex forms where the verb goes through those inflections, mood, voices, tenses, etc. Look at my footnote to number two. The he feel, according to the Blue Letter Bible Tools, and there's a link there if you have the written notes or if you're looking at this online, you can actually click on that and it should take you to the Blue Letter Bible Tools. The he feel stem in the Hebrew, the conjugation form, is defined as usually expressing the causative action of the simplified call stem. All right? Call, Q-A-L, is the simplest form that the verb will find itself in. In Hebrew, this usually is in the past tense, meaning it's a, it's a perfected tense verb, past tense. It's a completed action. So the he feel of the call, in, the, in that version, the, he, the call he feel, the simplified he feel stem, according to our example, uh, for, they get three examples. He ate. He caused to eat. He fed. That's one version. He came. He caused to come. He brought. That's a second uh, example. Or he reigned. He made king. He crowned. See, those those are call and the he fill. 
That's one. That's the first part of the definition of what this uh, verbal stem tries to convey to its English readers. He feel, according to the second um, part of this definition, is often used to form verbs from nouns and adjectives. And they give you some examples here. In a noun or the adjective he feel, we have example number one, ear to listen or lend an ear. It's a Hebrew idiom. He has an ear to listen. He lent an ear. That's what it means. Or the second example, they said, far to remove oneself. That is to say, to put far away. That's what the idiom means. And then they give you one third um, definition of the he fill. They let you know that some simple verbs are found in he fill. And then they give you an example to cast, to destroy, to get up early, to explain, to tell. Um, the particular he fill form accounts for 13.3% of the verbs that are parsed in the Tanakh. And that's um, that's according to the Blue Letter Bible Tools. So, this phrase, making one wise, lahaskil, comes from the Hebrew verb sakal, and in, in the form that we read in the sentence there, lahaskil is actually a conjugation of the word sakal. And so it's in its he fills them, and it generally causes the subject to become something that they previously were not. In essence, it adds to the quality of the original form. That's according to the BDB. That's why it's called causative. Okay? Are you following me so far? I hope I'm not confusing you. Now, how is this significant to you, the reader? Why do you care? Well, consider this. This is Eve we're talking about, right? It says that when the woman saw... Up until the eating of the forbidden fruit, Eve had been creative, created complete. Our first parents were created complete. They lacked no wisdom. God created them exactly with the proper amount of wisdom and knowledge that they needed at this point. They were created perfect. Okay, they, God did not create them inadequate. He created them and gave them instructions. And they were to follow these instructions according to God's design. But but for some reason, they were brought to the place where they believed themselves to lack something. Now this is not only a lie, but it is an affront on the creative genius of God himself. To suggest that we are created lacking something, that's wrong. Now think about it. Man was perfect at his creation. To be sure, Adam was able to name all of the animals with the wisdom that Hashem created him with. Adam named all of the animals? If we were to take this passage literally, and not hyperbole, where it's just kind of an exaggerated statement, you have to think about it. Even today, our smartest specialists cannot do the same without the aid of materials of some sort. Ask any person who who is a uh, who knows anything about animals? Ask someone who's a specialist. Ask them to name all the animals. They they can't do it without a list. Adam was able to do it, first-handedly, and he did it without any computers, any 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 clever books. He didn't have any special list. God said, "Adam, call the animals their name by their name, and whatever you name them, they'll be named that." And Adam was able to name them. Wow, Adam was pretty smart, don't you think? In fact, scientists today suggest that we don't use all of our brain capacity. I can't remember what the percentage is. If, I think it's something like we only use, what, 10% of our brain or a, a very, very small percent of our brain capacity. 
Is it possible maybe that before the fall that Adam was able to actually tap into the full capacity of his brain power that God created him with? And that's why he was a lot smarter than we are today? Yeah, I think so. So, God endowed them with all the wisdom that they needed at that point. The wisdom that they possessed was exactly the amount that Hashem knew they needed. You see, when the adversary suggested that Eve, that Chava's wisdom was lacking in some manner, you remember? Go like, go back and look. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. And um, uh, it's in verse 4, Pasuk 4, chapter 3. This, this is out of the, uh, st- uh, the uh, Art Scroll edition, Tanakh. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that on the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and bad. Now, did you catch the clever um, insinuation in his statement? The adversary is suggesting to Chava that God held back. God didn't give you all that you need to have. God held back the knowledge of good and evil from you. And so, you're really not perfect, Eve. You're defective. And the only way that you're going to fix the problem of your defect is for you to taste some of the fruit that God said don't eat or God said don't touch. That's a different midrash. You've heard sermons that say that God said don't touch of it, but but um, God said don't eat of it. But at, uh, uh, Eve added the phrase don't touch or eat. That is true. She added to God's word, and that is that's sin as well. But I believe that there's more at stake here than, than her just adding to. Um, of what God actually said. Maybe God did tell her um, not to touch it and we just don't have it written down for us. I'm not sure about that. We do know that she disobeyed and that is clearly a violation of God's command. But notice here that the devil, the adversary, is 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 insulting God's creative uh, genius. He's insulting God's creation. Oh no, Eve. I'm just paraphrasing, obviously. Oh no, Eve. Nope, you're defective. You've got a problem. And if you want to fix your problem, you need to go ahead and just take the, your take 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 your own initiative and 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 eat of that tree so you can fix the problem that God uh, uh, gave to you. You know that God created you with. How 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 rude of God not to create you with everything that you needed to survive. How how dare He create you with a defect? No, Eve. I think you need to take matters into your own hands and uh, just go ahead and eat that 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 forbidden fruit. You know, and and go ahead and put back into you that which you're lacking. Are you seeing, beginning to see it here? In other words, how is it that the devil was able to trick Chava into thinking that the tree would make her wiser than she already was to begin with? You see, by understanding today that she was tricked into doubting the providence of her creator, I think we begin to understand why Hashem was so disappointed at the simple act of eating from a tree. Are you seeing it now? It is true that it was also blatant disobedience, but I believe that a primary mistake of the first couple was to mistakenly believe that in taking unto themselves a substance reported to possess wisdom, which they lacked, or which they thought they lacked, they could somehow improve on God's original design. The lie of the adversary. And you know what's the same lie today? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The adversary today is trying to constantly trick man into thinking that there is something greater out there awaiting man if he will just embrace the hidden 
wisdom, the, the, uh, the Gnostic wisdom that the devil is trying to offer us. You can be like God, the devil says. Just do this, do that. And the problem remains when man listens to the lie of the adversary instead of believing that God has all the answers. Looking back at our first parents, quite simply, they believed, as the adversary did unknown eons earlier, that they could be like the Most High. That's, of course, lifted from Isaiah 14, 14 from the KJV. What conclusions can we draw to our commentary today? Well, we surely know that there is a problem, and it was introduced way back in the garden. Let's talk about this, and let's also look towards the solution. This final section in my commentary is called Conclusion. We know from both the adversary's example as well as from the numerous examples of people that have been recorded in the Tanakh and in other places that equality with God is a serious offense. It's serious. God will not put up with it. Attributing power unto another created being, power that belongs only to the Most High God, is labeled blasphemy. Blasphemy. That's why the Jewish people, by the way, are so upset at the Christian notion that Jesus is God. How dare you attribute, they say, the power reserved to Hashem, the Holy One, Hakadosh Baruch Hu, how dare you attribute this power to a created man known as Jesus. They can't understand the mystery of the Incarnation, that Jesus is 100% man. That's right. But he's 100% God. Let's talk about that a little later, right? The lust of the flesh. Remember that the adversary tricked Eve into thinking that this was good for food. The lust of the flesh, the sustenance that that she thought it would, would add to her flesh, to her belly. The lust of the eyes. Remember the passage says that it was pleasing in its appearance, this, this fruit, whatever it was. It was a, the, the lust of the eyes. These are bad enough temptations in and of themselves, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. I mean, just those two alone are enough to bring your average man down, right? In and of themselves, then, you know, again, they're enough to, to, to really just uh, wipe a person out. That, that's, that's part of our, our problem today, is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And, and because they're so bad in and of themselves, then we should strive to avoid them. But when we get involved with this third one, the pride of life. I'm playing with that passage in First John again, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This third one, the pride of life. Remember, what did, the, what did the passage say? It is desirable for making one wise. The pride of man. The wisdom that man seeks after. Making one wise. I think it's there that when uh, that man really starts going downhill. When, when it's this third one that we're bitten by. You know, it, it, these three sins are really bad. I mean, I'm not saying that these are the, the worst of the worst. I'm just, just making a midrash, okay? The lust of the flesh, good for food. The lust of the eyes, pleasant in appearance. And the pride of life, desirable for making one wise. Eve was in a bad position, and Adam was no better because he followed suit with his wife. He ate the forbidden fruit that he knew that God had commanded him not to eat. This means Adam must also have suffered from these same three temptations. I believe he knew. I believe he knew better. And so at least we could say that the woman was tricked. 
But Adam, what was his excuse? I don't think he had one. So, borrowing again from Isaiah 14, the Torah tells us that it was pride that brought the adversary down from his prestigious position of leadership. Remember, it was pride. The devil said to himself, I will be like the Most High. The adversary assumed, or presumed, or, or, or envisioned that he could be equal to God. No, the devil thought that he could be greater than God. This is a serious offense. Equality with God. It's not to be played with people. You can also read Ezekiel 28 verses 1 through 19 for more about the fall of the adversary so long ago. You know, let's, let's draw a comparison. The adversary gives us an example of what we should not endeavor, what we should not strive to have, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We are to be satisfied with how we've been created. God created us perfect. And in our fall, in our, in our fallen state, God still created us with the ability to come back to himself. And how do we find God again? By looking to the perfect man that God has sent into our history. A man has been born from history. A man has been born among us from the lineage of Adam. Who shares with us the, 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 the substance that Adam has. He's human. But this man was endowed with the wisdom from on high. Let's turn to Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11. It says, quote, well, just in verse 6, it says, quote, Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be possessed by force. End quote. Who's it talking about there? Of course, the passage is talking about the man, Yeshua, from Nazareth. Did he clamor after power that was not his? Did he... Did he yearn for a wisdom that was not given to him? No. Did he yearn for a wisdom that was not his? No. What did the Pasuk say? Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be possessed by force. Something which the adversary did regard. Remember? That was the devil's fall. He thought to himself, I'm created, but I can be like the Creator. This is drastically different from what is recorded of the Messiah here in Philippians. Our Lord Yeshua has no reason to be jealous of the Father's power. He has no reason to desire that which is not His. Neither is there any room for pride. Why? Because Yeshua the Messiah, unlike the adversary, unlike our first parents, Yeshua is one in purpose and will with the Father. Yeah. You see, Yeshua is our perfect example. He is the, the, the solution to the problem plaguing every single man born after Adam's sin. Our first parents would have done well if they could follow the example of our Lord Yeshua. Now, of course, I realize that that's an anachronistic suggestion. Yeshua came after our parents. But Yeshua's life example was the perfect one, even though his example is yet history. Hashem's ultimate plan would be demonstrated 
by sending his son to take on human form, take on uh, the nature of humanity, and yet Yeshua chose not to sin. He did not he did not reach for that which was not his because it was his. The wisdom from on high was already his. He laid it aside to come to earth. And because of his, his obedience to God the Father at his resurrection, he was granted that which was already his in the beginning, the wisdom of God. You see, Hashem's ultimate plan was not thwarted by the likes of an ancient snake. The adversary thought that by tricking our first parents that um, that he would ruin the plans that God had already planned you know the the, the, the plans that God had already uh, designed from the beginning when he created man that there would be a perfect man who would um, who would redeem fallen man God in his in his in his infant knowledge knew that man would need a uh, need a messiah need a uh, um, a redeemer. And so the adversary tried to stop that plan. But Yeshua succeeded. Hashem graciously for our parents provided a covering for their nakedness in chapter 3 verse 21. And he justifiably meted out the appropriate punishment for each of them in chapter 3 verses 14 through 19. In fact, God in his mercy even provided the first scriptural messianic prophecy and he gave it to them right there in chapter 3 verse 15. He told them of a future descendant of theirs who would come and who would crush the seed of the serpent. He would crush his head. There would be enmity between the woman's seed and the seed of the serpent. But that ultimately, this promised one to come would crush the head of the serpent. If we were to continue to read through the rest of the parasha, we would see that it's given over to the genealogies of the first family. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 532. Uh, the ongoing consequences of the introduction of sin into the world, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And then the first murder in chapter 4, verse 8. We also see the uh, beginning of God's continuing plan of righteousness established through seed. And this is in chapter 6, verse 8. But as we draw my commentary to a close, let me just say this. Since the Messiah has provided a more permanent covering than the animals that God provided for the uh, uh, our first parents there in the garden. Messiah has provided us a more permanent covering for our transgressions than the animals could ever cover. Then we as believers today do in fact have an example that we can follow. We're not like Adam and Eve where, we, where everything is yet future. I'm speaking in the 21st century and the Messiah has come. And he has made a way whereby we can resist the temptations of the adversary. And oh yes, don't get me wrong, the adversary is still at work. He's still up to his old tricks. And because he's older than any one of us, we don't stand a chance against him. Except by the grace and the mercy of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. The adversary is, is, the, is that ancient serpent and he is still up to his old tricks. He is still attempting to try and um, get man to fall into the age-old lie of believing that we can be made wiser than we, than, than we really suppose that we are. He still tempts us with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's the same old tricks. And since, as believers, this mind, which was in Messiah Yeshua, 
is in us. Since we have the mind of Messiah in us, read Philippians 2.15, then we need, I'm sorry, Philippians 2.5, we need not give in to the old lie of trying to be wiser than we really are, or wiser than we already are. We have been endowed with the perfect amount of wisdom from on high that God knows that we need. Okay? Hashem has mercifully endowed us with wisdom from on high, and we can be gracious and thankful for that. Don't clamor for more than God has given you. Expect the best, that's right, but let God meet it out to you. Read His Word and believe the promises that everything that He has, has planned for you is for your good. Don't believe the lie of the adversary. Let us live our lives in the richness of the truth of His Word. Amen. Oh, man. Let's close the blessing. Uh, let's close the Torah portion with the closing blessing. Uh, I'm not going to chant it. I'll just go ahead. I'm not going to. Yeah, I'm not going to chant it. I'll just go ahead and read it. And then from here on out, I'll just read each opening and closing blessing. Okay? Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu torate met vechaye olam natabatochinu. Baruch atah Adonai notein haTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth, and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. And with that, I wish you a hearty Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song Shema was written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com or visit our website at graftedin.com that's graftedin.com <laughs>